continuing our series, Letters from Patmos, where we're examining the words that Jesus spoke to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And uh, if you've missed any of the messages, you can go to myfamchurch.com, check them out there. You can download the app and listen or watch there. Usually I do some sort of review about the previous week, but this week I just don't have time to do that. And so if you want to know what was said last week, go and watch the message. Now, Those of you that were here on Wednesday night or maybe saw my Facebook post this morning know what we are going to be talking about this morning, okay? We are going to be talking about sex. All right. Yes. No, that's good. And you know, to to prepare for this message, I had to put in some late nights and I had to involve some extra help from my wife in order to prepare from this. Come on, that was funny. All right, anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, that's what we're looking at. And here's the deal. You know, when you, when you mention that in the church, things can get a little awkward. I mean, usually when I post about what we're going to be talking about uh, on a Sunday morning, I'll usually get a bunch of likes on, on it. And this morning, I think people were really uncomfortable with liking it because the only one who actually liked it was Roy. And so he's not embarrassed, but I think the rest of us are embarrassed about the topic. And the thing is, is that we think, oh, we shouldn't be talking about that in the church. Well, here's the deal, okay? Out there in the world, they're talking about this, and they're talking about it all the time. And those of you with kids, okay, those are the people that are talking to your kids. And we need to have a biblical perspective on the subject. We need to understand what Jesus has said in regards to this subject. And so that's why we're going to talk about it. Jesus wants truth communicated, okay? And and some people will say, well, it's kind of a dirty subject. No, you know what? When God created this back in Genesis chapter 2, It was good. It was pure. It was holy. What's happened is the world and Satan have taken this and twisted it and made it into something dirty. But it's not something dirty. It was designed for good, but that's what we're going to explore today. And uh, I just want you guys to relax a little. You know, you can laugh if something is kind of humorous. It doesn't make you a bad person for laughing at something that we're talking about this morning. But, uh, you know, I usually start off with a story and, uh, about my life. And I figured with this subject matter, maybe starting off with a story isn't such a good plan. And, and so I'll skip over any stories uh, for you this morning. But as I said, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chap- uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And so if you're familiar with where that's at, f- please feel free to turn there. And I know I've said this before, but just for anyone who's new this morning to Fam Church, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. If you go to the end of your Bible and start paging backwards, you'll eventually run into Revelation and then find chapter 2 in there. And if you aren't able to find it, we're going to have it on the screen behind me for you to follow along. But before we read the text, we're going to be reading the letter to the church in the city of Pergamum. And so I just want to do a little bit of background information about Pergamum, this city, and what it is. And, and this city is a little bit different than the last couple of cities we looked at. See, the other cities that we had looked at, they were port cities. They were down on the coast. Well, this city wasn't a port city. It was 15 miles inland, but it was also 1,300 feet up in elevation, okay? And it looked over this giant river valley. And because of its height, its location, it made it a perfect city 
for military invasion because they could get up on the walls of the city and look out across the valley for miles and miles and miles. And so they could see advancing armies coming for a long time. And so what happened was, is this city, after it was founded, it became relatively prosperous because it was not invaded. Well, then when the Romans rose to power, this city became more popular because it was the only city in Asia Minor that sided with the Romans before Romans actually before Rome actually invaded Asia Minor, okay? They, the, the Seleucids were the ones who were in power when Rome was marching its armies across the Middle East, and uh, they sided with Rome against the Seleucids, and what happened was Rome, because they were thankful that they served as their allies, they rewarded the city, and how they rewarded the city was they gave them a temple to the emperor. And so what that meant was that they could worship the emperor. It was the only city in Asia Minor that you could go to and worship the emperor at. As a matter of fact, they designated it a neokoros, which means a warden of the imperial worship. And that title allowed them to have a priest, a temple staff, to lead worship to the emperor. And that, more than anything, made this the leading city of the area because it was the only city in Asia Minor that had that title. And you may be wondering, well, why am I telling you this today? But it'll all be important after we read the text with a little explanation. And so with that, let's go into Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to do verses 12 through 17. And this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, and so this is the church that Jesus speaks my favorite line in the Bible to. You know, that I have a sword and I know where you live line. I mean, that's just awesome, isn't it? That's like bad but Jesus right there saying, look, I got a sword and I know where you live. Don't mess with me. Okay, and I'm sure all of us at some point have wanted to use a line like that. But, but Jesus was speaking these words to that church because that church was in a position where it seemed like Satan had power. Okay, and, and Satan, um, in, in this time, this letter, when it was written to the churches uh, in, in Asia Minor there, when they read these words... They actually were more, when they saw the, 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 the beast and, the, and, and the, the, the false prophets and all of that stuff, they would have thought of the Roman Empire and this imperial cult of worshiping the emperor. That's where their minds would have gone when they read this. And so they were living in a place where Satan had his throne, where there was worship of the emperor, which the, the Romans made you worship the emperor. It was something that you had to do. And if you didn't, you could be put to death. And so this was the situation that they were living in. They were being persecuted because as Christians, they were not willing to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to the emperor as a god. And so Satan had his throne there because the emperor was there and they were being persecuted for not doing this. And, uh, and Jesus I was just telling them, look, I know it looks like the Roman government has all power and authority here, but they don't. 
I do. I've got the double-edged sword. And that's the word that that church needed to hear because of the persecution that they were going through. But Jesus had something against this church. Okay, and he starts off by saying that they held to the teachings of Balaam. Now, if you're not familiar with who he is, his story is found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, starting in chapter 22 and running through chapter 25. We're not going to uh, read the whole thing, but I would challenge you to check it out to make sure that we're telling you the truth here. But there was this king named Balak who wanted to pay this man named Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. That was his job. He was like, hey, I'll give you 100 bucks if you come curse them. And so Balaam is like, hey, I need some money, so I'm going to go curse them. And so he shows up there, and God shows up and says, you are not going to curse these people. And so Balaam still wanted to get paid, though. I mean, we all want to get paid, right? So he wanted to get paid, and so he found a way around this. He explained to the king that maybe you don't have to curse them, but you can cause Israel to bring a curse upon themselves by pulling them into sacrificing to idols and committing sexual sin. And that's exactly what he did. Okay, they, they started worshiping Baal. Uh, uh, Balak got them to worship Baal and started committing sexual sin with the Midianite women. And for this reason, God sent a plague on Israel and 24,000 men died in that plague. And this seems to be the thing that's happening in the church in Pergamum. People were compromising what they knew, what Jesus had said about sex, and it was causing conflict, and it was almost causing the church to be pulled apart. And can I tell you, this is one of the biggest issues that the church is still facing today, okay? Sex and and how sex is viewed, how sex is seen inside the church. Because we get so many different views and we, we, we take so many different things and we twist it all around. And so this morning, we're going to look at what God says about sex. We are going to look at this sort of stuff so that we can avoid the sin of Balaam and spend our lives having awesome guilt-free sex. That's a good thing, right? That that excites me. I don't know about you. I mean, but I'm excited about that. Okay, where we're going to turn for that to look at how God initially designed sex was back to the beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis. Uh, Revelations at the end of the Bible, Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. And I'm going to be reading from chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 in Genesis. And this is what it says there. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They shall be called, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, so you listen to that. Some of you may have thought, okay, that last line there is the key here. They felt naked, and they had no shame, and so I just need to find a good woman that I can be naked with and feel no shame, and everything's good, right? No, that's not, what this is go- that's not what's going on here, all right? I see three components 
in this text that we just looked at. I see three parts in this text that we looked at that show us the picture that God developed, the, the way that God designed for sex to take place. And so we're going to look at these three things. And the first thing that I see there is there was a godly man. Okay, the, the only relationship that Adam had had up until this point was with God. There was no woman. There was no other human beings. It was Adam and it was God. He hung out with Adam in the morning. He hung out with Adam in the afternoon. He hung out with Adam in the afternoon. He spent his days and nights with God and God was his world. He was a godly man. And so I know that we've got to think about this because we, we just don't know what a definition of a godly man is anymore. And I've watched women make so many bad decisions when it comes to relationships with men. And so let's, let's talk about a few of the things that a godly man is not, okay? A godly man is not someone who looks good in his skinny jeans, okay? That does not fall under the category of godly. Okay, A godly man is not somebody who's got a six-pack. For some of you, you're thinking I'm talking about beer. No, I'm not talking about beer. Uh, I'm talking about their abs, okay? They got to have a ripped stomach and they look like, ah, you know? And then for some of us, it's like they just got to be hot. That's all I need is a hot guy and everything's going to be okay. That may be fine, but those, none of those things are godly. The first and foremost thing of somebody who is a godly man is someone who has given their life to Jesus. A man who has come and surrendered his life to Jesus and said, that's who I am going to follow. That's the first and foremost thing. And so you're saying to yourself, well, how can I tell if they've given their lives to Jesus? Well, here's, here's a few things that can help tip us off, okay? First of all, if this man has given his life to Jesus... He is going to be somebody who gives of their time, of their talents, and of their treasures to the work of God. Okay, they're going to be somebody who serves in a church, who ministers in a church. They're going to be somebody who gives of their finances to the work of the kingdom of God. They're going to be somebody who is so invested with their life that you can look at their life and see that it revolves around who Jesus is. A second thing that you can tell a godly man by is that he has respect for women. Can I tell you, there are so many, I've met so many guys who will put music in their ears, who will put videos on their phone screens that denigrate, talk down, and talk bad about women, and then they want to go out and find themselves a good woman. Can I tell you that if that is what you are putting into your brain about woman, women, you are never going to find a good one because you are going to start believing those denigrating things that you are pumping into your brain. Third thing, you fight sexual temptation. Too many men these days are giving in to sexual temptation, especially when it comes to pornography. It's destroying relationships. It's destroying families. And if you're not willing to fight against that force, if you're not willing to go and step up and do battle against the sexual temptations that you face, men, you are never going to find a godly woman. You're not going to be suitable for a godly woman. The key is fighting. 
okay? Because what everybody needs to understand in this room, women, you need to hear this, is that the man you are with is going to struggle with sexual temptation the rest of their life. That's just how we're made. That's how we're wired. That's what we fight against. I fight against it. But the key is fighting against it. Men stepping up and going to war against that force that's trying to pull you out and take you out of God's presence. Women, if they're facing that battle and they're not willing to fight against it, that's not a godly man. That's not someone you want to get involved with. Women, sorry, I just edited out a whole bunch of my text. Now you may be saying, okay, what's the second thing that it takes? Second thing it takes, godly man takes a godly woman. I said this before in one of my previous messages, uh, but Eve's first relationship was with God as well. See, God created Eve, and Adam was asleep next to them. And so the first person that Adam or Eve had contact with was God. That was the first person he was in relationship with. And so the thing is, is that women, that's got to be your first relationship as well. A godly woman helps to make good sex. So what does a godly woman look like? What are we looking for in a godly woman? Well, same thing as the men, you know, somebody who's given their lives to Jesus, who's surrendered their lives to Jesus, and who's also giving of their time, talents, and treasures to the work and the advancement of the kingdom of God. But another thing is that, ladies, Jesus has to be your Savior. You can't be waiting for a man to come and rescue you from whatever it is you're going through in life. I know we've seen all of the Disney movies where the good-looking prince rides in on a horse and scoops the maiden out of her situation and rides off to a castle and lives there forever. Can I tell you? That's not real life. Okay, that's not going to happen. Don't be waiting for someone to come and save you. Jesus is the only one that can save you from your situation and your circumstances. A second thing a godly woman does not do is do whatever it takes to keep her man. See, I've met too many ladies who will do whatever it takes, go, go wherever they need to break any laws they need to break in order not to lose their man. Ladies, that's not a man worth holding onto if he's pulling you into places and situations and circumstances that you don't belong in. A man is not what defines you. Jesus is what defines you. There's no man that's going to treat you better. There's no man that's going to give you more respect and make you into the best you you can be. The only person that can do that for you is Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Live your life for Jesus and no one else. And then the third thing it takes to have good sex is marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant before God between a man and a woman where they say, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with as my partner. Now, I know there's situations and there's places. We're not going to talk about the the divorce and the the possibilities and and stuff that happens there, okay? And uh, if you've been through a divorce, 
um, I know that it's painful. I know that it's hard. I know that it's difficult. But Jesus is there to walk you through whatever pain that you have. I don't want to talk about that this morning. Uh, but what I want to talk about uh, is this. The first thing is when you're married to someone for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you're going to bump heads with the person once in a while, okay? There's going to be conflict. There's going to be fights, okay? There's going to be difficulties. Just like when we talked about last week, we have this idea in our head that if I'm a Christian and they're a Christian and we get married, that life is going to be perfect in our marriage. It is not. It cannot. We're both people. We're both sinful. We both bump heads. We both do stupid things. There's going to be problems. The second thing is this. Someday you're going to step back and at one point or another in your marriage, you're going to say to yourself, did I marry the right person? Everybody questions that at some point or another in their marriage. Okay, people think that they can't ask that question. They can't have that thought in their head. Can I tell you that there's going to be something that's going to come along? You're going to get into a fight with your spouse that is so intense, that is so difficult, that you're going to walk away from that saying, I may have married the wrong person. Just bottom line, it's going to happen. Okay, it's happened with us. Okay, or you're going to be at work. You're going to be working on a project and you're going to be working with someone of the opposite sex. And you're going to notice that they seem to like the same things you like. They seem to be interested in the same things you are interested in. They seem to have a common mission and purpose in their lives as you do and they seem to be heading in the same direction. And you're just going to say to yourself, did I marry the wrong person? Did I marry the wrong person? The thought's crossed my mind before. It's crossed Dana's mind before. We've talked about it. But can I tell you, you're going to go through those things, but just remember that when those thoughts come into your head, the answer to the question, Jesus, did I mess up and get married too soon? Should I have waited for someone else? Was there someone else I should have waited for? The answer to that question is no. When those struggles come, what we need to do is not give in to them and speak the truth of God into that situation and say, you know what the truth is here? The truth is that God has put me with this person and this is the person that I'm going to work and battle through with. He has established my marriage and that's where my future lies. But see, when you have those three pieces in place, when you have, um, you, that's when you have sex the way God intended to be. When you have a godly man, a godly woman, marriage, and you have those three operating, that's the way, that's when it's the way God intended it to be. But in the church now, we're trying to redefine what God or what biblical sex is by changing definitions and by changing words and by changing concepts. I've had several people tell me, look, you know, we're getting married, we're engaged, and so it's close enough, and so it's okay if we start having sex. The answer to that is no, it's not. Okay? Mary, you're missing one of the pieces of the puzzle, and that's marriage. 
okay? I've had other people come to me and say, look, you know, um, it, it's all about love, right? And so if I just love the person, if it's, or, or if we just love each other, if it's a man and another man or a woman and another woman or me and somebody who's not a Christian and we're in love, then everything's okay. No, you're missing a piece of the puzzle, okay? You're missing a godly spouse. You're missing somebody of the opposite sex who's a godly spouse. That's the way God established it, man, woman, marriage. When those pieces are pulled out, it is not biblical marriage. It's not biblical sex. And I know some people will even say, you know what? I understand all of this, but I really don't want to get divorced. And so in order to avoid divorce, we're just going to move in together and test all this stuff out. Can I tell you the divorce rate for people who live together before they get married is 33% higher than it is with people who don't? 33% higher. So actually, in saying that, you're setting yourself up for divorce. You've got a higher percentage of divorce. And it also brings up another misunderstanding about sex when it comes to living together, that sexual compatibility is a huge factor in marriage. Now, I will say this, some things about sex do need to be discussed before marriage, okay? Like if you're going into a marriage and the woman's idea is, well, we can maybe have sex once a month. And the man's idea is, well, I was thinking, you know, right before breakfast and then after dinner every day, you know? I mean, Okay, you got to work that out before you get married, okay? Because that'll cause all kinds of trouble once you get married, okay? So, so that's something that you've got to work out, okay? But sex is a road to something deeply sacred and meaningful. It's not a sport where we break out the scorecards and rate people's performances. And listen, if we really have sex God's way, what is there to compare it to? Okay, if it's one godly man, one godly woman in marriage, there's nothing else to compare it to because the only person that you've had sex with is the person that you've got married to. And at that point, you know what? It's good because you have no idea what anything else is like. And you know what? That's what's healthy for your marriage. That's what's healthy for your marriage instead of going into it saying, well, oh, this, tonight I give you a five. You know, last night was a seven. Uh, last week you hit a 10 once. You know, I mean, that's stupid. So you may be saying, well, why did God give sex in the first place? Because, I mean, he could have avoided all of this by creating another way. Well, sex was given for three reasons, okay? The first reason was procreation. I hope all of you in this room know how you came into existence. I hope I'm not spoiling anything here, but I don't think any of you were dropped off at the door by a stork. You guys may want to believe that, okay? But I don't think anyone was. I mean, I don't think anybody ran up to your mom and dad's door, rang the doorbell, and then took off running, and they came, whoa, baby, look at that. That's our son. That's our daughter. No, okay? We know procreation. We know something happened on a cold winter night when your parents were snowed in. We know something happened when there was a hurricane. <laughs> I'm seeing people tapping their family members on the shoulders. Oh, getting way too much information out of this message. All right, you know, was a, a hurricane happened. The power was out. You were trapped in your house for two days because there was trees down over the road and something happened. Yeah, I mean, that's how it happened. 
But that was God's, sorry, I totally lost my place now. Procreation, yes. And so, so God, that's one of the primary reasons for sex was for procreation, was to continue the human race, was so that we would have children. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, right? And that's one of those commands that I think Adam was like, got your back, God. Got this one, okay? I can take care of this. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way I was like, sometimes you wish God gave us that. I don't know, maybe none of you else think that. But sometimes I think, I wish God gave me that command, you know? You got to be busy. Keep busy. Don't stop. Got to be fruitful. But, uh, but with that, you know, we, we hear that phrase, be fruitful and multiply. And we think to ourselves, and then, so this whole topic then comes up with discussion of birth control, Okay. And, uh, and, and I just want to say something about birth control before we move on because we've known people who have told us that, that because God wants us to be fruitful and multiply that we shouldn't use birth control, that it's a sin to use birth control. Here's what I will say. In my study, in my looking at the subject, I believe that's a personal conviction, okay? That's my personal belief. It's a personal conviction held by each husband and wife in their relationship that they need to determine. Um, if, if you disagree with me, that's fine. If you want to prove your point to me, that's fine. We can come and we can sit down over coffee and we can look at it. But right now, my belief is that that's a matter of personal conviction for a family to decide. And it's not, God doesn't want you to have 26 kids, okay? He doesn't want all of us to have TV shows on, uh, what, what network was that on? TLC? Okay. He doesn't want us to all have TV shows where we've got like 300 kids and, and you know, we're all living in a house this size, okay? That, that's not the plan. That's, I, I don't believe that's the plan. That's personal conviction. But I will say this, okay? Pills that terminate pregnancy and abortion are not birth control. They are not birth control. That's taking a life. And I know there may be some in here this morning who have been through the pain and the hurt of an abortion. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He created you knowing that you're going to make that decision and he created you anyway because he loves you so much. And that decision, he's got grace, he's got mercy, and he's got forgiveness for you. He loves you. We don't want to bring judgment upon you here at this church because of that. We want you to know God's hope, God's healing, God's peace, and we are here to walk you through any pain that you may be going through because of that. The second reason, this is the best part, and I'm like, it's already 12 o'clock, but this is the best part, okay? The second reason God gave us sex was for our enjoyment, okay? We're going to look at the book Song of Solomon. Uh, if you're new to church, uh, your minds are going to be blown that this is in the Bible, all right? Uh, some of you that have been around the church for a while and read this book have been told that this book is a picture of Jesus in the church, okay? I'm going to read these sections to you, and here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture Jesus saying these things to the church, okay? Because you're going to picture picture this, and you're going to go, oh boy, Jesus wouldn't say that to the church. But this is a letter written, husbands and wives, one to another, their love, their sexual relationship, and it being expressed in the text. And so we're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then verse 16, and then uh, chapter 7. And uh, I've got a I'm, I'm moving really slow. I've got to move faster because it's already 12 o'clock. But this is what it says uh, in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 and 16. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Anybody want hair like a flock of goats in this room? All right. 
Descending from the hills of Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of just shorn sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stones. On it hanging a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the daybreak and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. All right, chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. This is what it says. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O princess daughter. Uh, your grateful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a round goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pool of Heshbon by the gates of bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I'm not sure if that's flattering or not because I think of a tower, I think really big. Okay, looking towards Damascus, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm. This is the best part. And your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, here we go. I said, I will climb that palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Okay, so I know some of you aren't laughing at that, but uh, that can't be Jesus in the church. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but some of you, you know, you heard that, and you can't wait home to get, get you can't wait to get home after service hearing that. But a uh, fam church is never going to love you like that. Okay, so if that's what you're looking for in a church, this is not the place for you. This is a picture of a husband and wife enjoying each other sexually, and that's part of the reason God created it. And really, let's be honest here, if sex wasn't enjoyable, none of us would do it. All right? I mean, it's a lot of work, you know. I mean, come on. God had to make it enjoyable. All right? All right, then the third reason God gave us sex was for intimacy. It's so that we would connect on an intimate level. But in order for that to work, we have to understand a couple of things about each other, okay? Uh, men, we connect in the bedroom first before we connect outside of the bedroom. Women, you connect outside of the bedroom before you connect inside of the bedroom. See the difference there? This is why there's so many problems sexually in our marriages. We need to work this out. And so, women, I'll start with you, then we'll go to the men. Women, sex is not a burden that you have to perform for your husband, okay? It's something that's designed for him to connect and unite to you, to feel that intimacy with you. That's what it is. And if you want to connect with your husband, women, you can't have excuses, okay? I'm tired. It's been a long day. I've got a headache. The kids are a lot of work. You've got to make the time to make that connection so your husband can feel connected to you. Then women, or men, I'm sorry, 
First thing is this, sex is not a need. You need food, okay? You need water, you need air. I have never been to or done a funeral where we looked down and said, man, poor Ralph, his wife just wouldn't let the north wind blow over her garden. And that six months just took him out, okay? Never has that ever happened. And so men, if you want to increase, I got another one for you. If you want to increase your chances of climbing that palm tree and getting a hold of that fruit, be intimate with your wife outside of the bedroom. When you come home from work, don't walk in the door, turn on Sports Center, sit down in front of the TV and zone out, okay? She wants to tell you every detail of her day. Do you want to connect with her? Listen to every detail of her day, okay? This is a way a lot of women connect with men is this sort of thing. I mean, I think I blow Dana away sometimes because she tells me all of the details of her work. I know all about the people she works with, details I don't really care to know, about the residents that she's there, but I know them. And I think I surprise her sometimes because she'll be talking to me about something and I'll say, is this the person that, 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 that? And she'll, oh yeah. So she knows I'm paying attention when she's telling me all the details of her day at work. But that helps to connect the two of us intimately outside the bedroom so that we have that connection inside. And if that's not the way your wife is at, men, here's a suggestion for you. Go to her and ask her what would help her to connect outside. And if you go to her and say, how will you help me to connect with you outside the bedroom? It's going to go a long way to you having that connection inside the bedroom. See, Jesus isn't playing around when it comes to sex and the church. Okay, he's not playing around. When you look at it, it says at the end of this that he's going to come with a sword and that sword that was meant for Satan's throne is going to be turned on the church because of the sexual immorality that was going on in the church. Now, we do need to understand something here. Jesus was talking to the church. Okay, he's not talking to the world outside the church. What we like to do is we like to say, okay, God, uh, this is the way it's supposed to be, so I'm going to tell everybody who's unsaved that they need to live like they know Jesus. We can't do that. Okay, we can't expect people who are far from God to live like they know God. What we need to do is we need as a church to step up and live the way that God has called us to live within a sexual relationship And it'll be a witness to those outside the church. Because it does no good to say, hey, stop that. That's gross. Hey, stop that. That's nasty. You're sick. You're a pervert. Okay, that doesn't help. That doesn't draw anyone to Jesus. But us living in the way, living our sexual lives the way that Jesus would have us live them, that will cause people to stop and look and say, what's going on? Why are you happy? Why is, why is it that you're so fulfilled in your sex life with your wife or your husband? And it's going to be a witness to those outside of the church to what Jesus can do and give them the things that they're missing 